what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Welcome to the 400th episode of What Works. I'm Tara McMullen. Just about seven years ago, my production team at Creative Live and I launched this little podcast baby out into the world. For the first 120 episodes or so, we produced the show together under the name Profit Power Pursuit. In May 2017, the show became What Works, and I've been producing it with the Cracker Jack team that used to be in-house, but is now known as Yellow House Media ever since. I've learned a lot about interviewing, storytelling, and audio production since then. I learned more about who I want to talk to and what topics I want to cover. But the show today is an extension of our original vision. While much has changed about the show, including the name, what hasn't changed is my deep desire to think critically and creatively about the ways we work today. This show has been and remains the body of work that I am most proud of. Those early episodes were rough. And if I listen back to them, I'm quite sure I need a stiff drink. But luckily, podcast feeds are limited to 300 episodes. I'm the podcaster I am today because I made those first 399 episodes. I fumbled some interview questions and absolutely nailed others. I backed down from some sticky subjects and tackled others head on. I've lost focus and regained it. I've gotten way behind and way ahead. I remind all of the podcasters I work with today that they can't compare my 347th episode to their 19th or 27th. Yes, they benefit from what my team and I have learned over the years, but that pales in comparison to putting in the reps. And that is the most important lesson making this podcast has taught me, the value of practice. In this episode, I wanna reintroduce myself and share more about that important lesson in an excerpt from my brand new book, What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting. I started my journey to self-employment back in 2008. I've called myself many things since then, blogger, web designer, marketing consultant, business coach, community builder. And there was a time when I insisted that my only title was CEO because my day-to-day work didn't look like business coaching, consulting, or even community building. Today, I'm back to calling myself what I do, I'm a writer, podcaster, and producer. And for what it's worth, these titles don't feel like mile markers on the path to something else, which is how I felt about all of the other titles I've held to this point. I'm not a cafe supervisor at Borders waiting to become a sales manager, waiting to become a general manager. 
not a business coach, on the path to becoming a CEO. And the reason that writing, podcasting, and producing aren't mile markers on the path is because they are the path. Writing, podcasting, and producing are practices woven into how I move through the world. Whatever else I am, I will always be a writer and producer. I will always yearn to make sense of the world around me in words. I will always find ways to package up those words and turn them into ideas and art others can engage with. And I choose to walk that path every single day. Podcasting was the first medium in which I really came to understand what it means to have a practice. When my main activity was blogging, I was always focused on just getting the next post out, originally three times a day, because that's how us maker and design bloggers rolled back then. When I was coaching, I could never quite establish a rhythm for myself. But podcasting, well, it has a steady cadence, a sustainable pace. When I first started podcasting, I batch recorded 10 to 12 episodes over two days out in our Seattle studio. Then each episode would drip out week by week. Every other month or so, I flew back out to the West Coast to do it all over again. I wasn't adept at pacing yet, But even then, I could lean into that 60 to 90 day cycle. Now, after a winter storm got between me and the Space Needle, I started recording the show at home. At first, I stuck with the every other month pace, but that didn't actually last long. I started scheduling interviews whenever they fit into my guest's schedule. And at that point, I finally began to sink into the weekly rhythm of producing the show. Within this new pacing and the benefit of my practice, I discovered that I could experiment with new ideas and techniques, more thoughtful intros and outros, better ads, stronger frameworks for interviews. Eventually, I discovered my pacing would allow me to get really creative with writing and editing the episodes, which is what you've heard on the show over the last 50 or so episodes. Today, the podcasters we work with at Yellow House Media are often shocked by how difficult the practice of podcasting can be. Interviewing, well, it's a strange beast. You barely talk, but somehow it is exhausting. And you're never quite sure if you've done enough research or if your questions will get you what you want from your guest. The schedule is relentless. Releasing content on the same day of the week two or four times a month is more structure than many hosts have ever given to their content creation. And promoting the show? Well, that can be a pretty thankless job. What I remind them, and you, is that all of the challenges of podcasting can be overcome with practice. Simple processes and routines to begin with lead to the space to play later on. The goal isn't to start a podcast sounding like you've already produced 400 episodes over seven years. The goal is to do just enough that you're proud of what you're doing and can do it again next week and the week after that. 
Of course, that's true for any endeavor that requires practice, which is most of them. There was a time when the idea of a practice or practicing was anathema to me. If I couldn't do it up to my expectations the first or second time out, well, I just wasn't going to do it. Wasn't interested in skill building, process, or maintenance. I didn't want to run drills or do conditioning. Just put me in the game, coach. But podcasting changed that for me. Podcasting helped me to find the satisfaction in practice and consistency. Podcasting introduced me to the pleasure of doing the same thing over and over again and discovering something new every time. Now, I don't know what the 500th episode of What Works will sound like, but I know how I'll get there. I'll keep up with my practice and stay curious about what I learn. An excerpt from Chapter 4, The Satisfaction of Practice in an Achievement-Oriented World. The rules had been constructed long before I was born, and I did not know yet I was allowed to break them, or redefine them, or ignore them entirely. Jamie Attenberg, I came all this way to meet you. Thanks to my daughter's persistent recommendation of a particular digital art app, I started drawing in early 2021. Visual art has never been an aspiration of mine. My brother is a talented artist, and anything I tried to create paled in comparison to his effortless renderings. And goodness knows, I don't like to play second fiddle. But sketching on my iPad while watching YouTube or binging old television shows in the evening became a way to calm my mind as I went through a particularly difficult mental health year. At first, I played with color and textures, non-representational art. Then I followed step-by-step tutorials to recreate images. Eventually, I gave myself the go-ahead to fly solo. Instead of relying on someone's detailed instructions, I would find an image I liked and break it down into shapes and proportions that I could recreate. It's been slow, yet rewarding work. This drawing practice has also been a study in finding satisfaction with imperfection and inadequacy, as well as joy in the process rather than in accomplishment. I've probably created a thousand or more images in a thousand or more hours. None of them will make me any money or win me any accolades. Not so long ago, I would not have devoted that much time to something with such middling results. But the results are only middling if the purpose of the time I spend drawing is to achieve a great or marketable piece of art. The purpose of this time, though, is not achievement. It's practice, a practice that relieves anxiety, stretches my self-imposed restrictions, and nurtures a deep sense of satisfaction. For most of my life, I'd avoid anything that didn't come easily to me. If I tried a new activity and didn't get better than average results in short order, I simply wouldn't do that activity again. 
My identity was wrapped up in being a person who is good at things. If I wasn't good at something, I couldn't do it and retain that identity. As I got older, I realized how much I limited myself, how many incredible experiences I denied myself. Because I like to win, I tend to choose activities that give me a greater chance of winning. Congratulations, you're a winner! Because I like for things to come easily to me, I avoid experiences that I might have had to work at to enjoy. Well, looks like the easy way is out. It's hard to learn new things when you only do things you're already good at, you know? One thing that I'm really good at, however, is routine. Once I've established a routine, I'm unlikely to deviate from it. It's one of my autistic superpowers. So when I decided to change up things and stretch myself, I knew I needed to establish a routine. I started slowly. Setting an alarm instead of waking up on my own, a privilege that I enjoyed ever since I became self-employed. Once up, I powered up the treadmill and took a 10-minute walk. 10 minutes became 15 minutes, 15 minutes became 20 minutes, and the dead of winter became the dawn of spring. With the temperature a bit warmer and my energy a bit higher, I started jogging. I picked up other exercise activities that I was curious about along the way. Powerlifting, hiking, bouldering, yoga. It was all new to me, and I wasn't good at any of it to start. In some of these pursuits, I did improve over time, and I certainly trained my body to withstand more demand. But I discovered what I really loved about these new additions to my routine was how they made me feel while I did them. Even when I earned a medal after a race or sent a difficult boulder problem, I found that what was really meaningful to me in the experience was knowing how I'd put in the work. I felt good about what had gotten me to that point of relative excellence, rather than just finding meaning in the outcome of my work. I'd stumbled on something that Kieran Sataya describes in his book, Midlife, A Philosophical Guide, as the difference between telic and atelic activities. In philosophy, teleology is the pursuit of understanding the goals or purposes of things. Telos is a Greek word that Aristotle uses to describe an entity's full purpose or ultimate end goal. In a metaphysical sense, that might be the greater purpose of one's life or the goal of their belief system. But for our purposes, I want to examine this idea of telos and, as Satya put it, telic activities in a much more mundane way. Let's start with one of the core reasons that our goals make us miserable. The fact that they are designed to end. Satya states it clearly. Quote, think of it this way. What gives purpose to your life is having goals, yet in pursuing them, you either fail, not good, or in succeeding, bring them to a close. If what you care about is achievement, earning a promotion, having a child, writing a book, saving a life, the completion of your project may be of value, but it means that the project can no longer be your guide. So far, I've focused on why the goals we set make us miserable. 
I've examined the moral systems they derive from and the objectifying forces that compel us to set many of the most common types of goals. I've considered how we seek greater power through our goals and perpetuate systems of harm in the process. But here, we look at goal setting as a problem in and of itself. Sataya defines atelic activities as those being focused on their end goals. Atelic activity might be the task of making dinner, the accomplishment of completing a work project, or the achievement of running a marathon. Worthwhile activities, to be sure. But once they end, we're at a loss for what is next, or we realize that we'll just have to do the same thing tomorrow. When we organize our lives around this relentless cycle of completion, we risk the sort of going through the motions malaise that leads to many career and family crises. Sataya contrasts atelic activities with atelic activities, those activities in which value is found through doing them rather than in completing them. Atelic activities might be taking a walk or playing music with friends, it's not that they don't eventually end. It's just that completion isn't the point of the activity. As a culture, we obsess on telic activities. We believe that each time we accomplish a task, we climb up that old familiar ladder. When really, we're just putting miles on the treadmill. Shout out to the runners who enjoy the treadmill. I am not one of those people. We set goals, create plans, and we strive toward their completion in lockstep with a whole industry that promotes this as the key to living a good life. Sataya argues that while there is value in planning projects or working toward particular outcomes, our over-reliance on telic activities and end goals keeps us fixated on the future, ignoring the meaning of the present moment. For me, and for Sataya, Telic and atelic activities can have considerable overlap, and switching one's orientation from future outcomes to present mindfulness can have a huge impact on overall satisfaction. It's here that I want to abandon this philosophical jargon, as fun for me as it might be, to offer up two more familiar terms to describe what Sataya is getting at achievement, and practice. I prefer these terms because they help to describe how an outcome-oriented activity can be recast as a process with value in and of itself. For instance, I'm writing this chapter on New Year's Eve, the day before many people will attempt to quote-unquote get healthy and take up running. I'll see them out on the trail tomorrow, huffing and puffing, and, and good for them. But here's the thing, for many, they'll define get healthy as losing some weight. For them, running is a means to an end. It isn't a meaningful activity in and of itself. Others might set the goal of running a springtime 5K or half marathon. Once the race is over, will they stick with running? Some will, but many will not. Running might accomplish the achievement of losing those pesky 10 pounds or completing the race, but it won't become a part of daily life for many of the people who decide to take it up tomorrow. At the risk of sounding self-congratulatory, the reason I've been able to stick with exercising every morning for five years 
is because I've embraced the practice. I find value in the time I spend pounding the pavement or on the yoga mat. And this shift doesn't only apply to exercise, of course. Cleaning the house might feel like a chore that only has value once it's finished. What would it take to turn cleaning into a process that provides value in doing it? For me, the answer is extra time to listen to podcasts. Completing a report at work might feel like busy work, something that only seems to have value because someone has required you to do it. What would it take to turn the process of completing that report into a satisfying process? Maybe you make a habit of hitting play on a favorite album each time you do that report. Or maybe you use the report as an opportunity to thank each member of your team for their particular contribution to the work that week. There will always be tasks or required outcomes that can't be turned into a satisfying process. And certainly, privilege is a big component of how successfully you convert chores into satisfying activities. But reconceiving much of how you spend your time into practice is absolutely possible. Okay, so what do I mean by practice? First, I absolutely, positively, do not mean practice makes perfect. The purpose of practice is not perfection or even improvement. The purpose of practice is presence, groundedness, and perspective. Practice can be extremely simple, no equipment or software needed, and transform basic activities into something nourishing and satisfying. As I mentioned earlier, routines are one of my autistic superpowers. Autistic people often develop routines that help them navigate the world and their emotions. My routines are extremely important to me. I don't do them compulsively, but I do feel off when I haven't gone through an important routine. For example, my morning routine consists of a cup of AeroPress coffee, a big bowl of non-dairy Greek yogurt with fruit and cereal, time with whatever book I'm reading, and then my workout for the day, which ideally ends up with a long walk listening to one of my favorite podcasts. I wake up between 5 a.m. and 5.30 a.m. every weekday morning in order to move through that three-hour routine before I start work, and I've been doing it for well over three years now. When we visit my husband's family in Montana, I don't have access to all the same ingredients of my routine, but I recreate it as best I can. I brew my coffee in the Keurig, eat a different brand of non-dairy yogurt, and read my book. Then I drive myself somewhere I can get in a good long walk and listen to a podcast. The same thing goes if I'm traveling for work or on vacation. I know this probably sounds like a burden, but it's grounding. My morning routine is a practice. It's something I come to every day to find presence and perspective. When I don't want to get out of bed, I think about how good I'll feel eating my yogurt and drinking my coffee. When I know I have a busy day full of difficult tasks, I linger in that routine to saturate myself with everything it has to offer me. Practice shows up in my life in plenty of other ways too. Writing is practice, baking is practice, podcasting is practice, reading is practice. They are activities that remind me where I am and offer me space for observing my own thoughts and feelings, even though each of these activities result in tangible outcomes. The essay, loaf of bread, 
episode, or completed book aren't the point of these activities. They're the byproduct of time spent mindfully. The way I engage practice is no doubt privileged, but there are so many ways to incorporate practice into daily life, small ways to turn the mundane into the satisfying. Maybe you take the bus to work and you find that walking to the bus stop shifts your mood when you listen to music. That's practice. Maybe you feed your cats as I do at the same time every evening and use that small amount of time to watch how their little bodies move eagerly while they wait. That's practice. Now, my guess is I'm not telling you something you don't already know. Hashtag savor the moment, am I right? Yet when we make practice intentional and conscious, we shift our relationships to systems of power. These systems would rather keep us rushing around, constantly consuming, and producing more and more with our time. Practice is resistance. It reduces urgency, creates satisfaction, and reminds you that there is more to life than being productive. I don't think it's going too far to say the practice is a good way to stick it to the man. Whether you're ready to stick it to the man or you're looking for a gentle, intentional way to structure your life and work differently, I hope you'll pick up a copy of What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting. As you might have guessed, it's not really a book about goal setting. It's not a book about achieving anything, really. It's a systematic deconstruction of the stories that keep us hustling, striving, and always looking for more. It's also a guide for reconstructing an approach to personal growth, planning, and productivity once we've shed those stories. I feel confident in saying that this book is unlike any other book on goal setting you've ever read. It leverages 14 years of working with small business owners, almost 400 interviews, my own personal story, and the work of a wide range of philosophers, sociologists, and psychologists. Go to explorewhatworks.com to learn more or grab your copy, or find What Works wherever books are sold. And if you've already read the book, it would mean the world to me if you left a review on Amazon. Your review really does help the book reach more people. Thank you so much for your support on both the book and on 400 episodes of What Works. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen, with help from Marty Seafelt. Sean McMullen and I are executive producers. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples in what is now called Central Pennsylvania. The Yellow House sits on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. 